Gresham College presents 60 Years On Leadership and Change Prime Ministers in the Post-War World, James Callaghan by Professor the Lord Kenneth Morgan with a response by Professor Peter Hennessy. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome. Uh, my name's Peter Hennessy, and it's my great pleasure and honour to introduce this evening my old friend Ken Morgan, who's been a really good mate to me and a mentor for over 30 years now. The plan is this evening I do a very brief introduction, Ken does his lecture and then I do a very brief response and we'll be out by seven o'clock, I think that's the drill. It's 10 years now since Ken's masterly official biography of Jim Callaghan was published and it remained a treasure trove for all political historians. It was very timely that it should appear in 1997 for a decade ago, at the beginning of the Blair Premierships, Jim Callaghan's reputation, wrongly in my view, was at a discount. The first former Prime Minister Tony Blair summoned to Downing Street to give him advice was Margaret Thatcher. Jim felt this, quite understandably. Mr Blair made amends later at a marvellous party in number 10 to celebrate Jim's 90th birthday. I shall never forget Jim's impromptu speech, which was warm and to the point and delivered without a note, a tribute not just to the specialness of the occasion, but to his oratorical gifts and also to a now long-gone era of unscripted exchanges at the hustings when political meetings were just that, not sound-bitten or part of one long coronation. Jim, I think, was neither old Labour nor new Labour, but original Labour. In a phrase Ernie Bevin liked to use, he was out of the bowels of the Labour movement. A journalist asked him, four months into the first Blair Premiership, if perhaps new Labour was keeping him at a distance to avoid any association with the winter of discontent. All Jim said was, yes, I've been blotted out of photographs, as it were. I thought then that time would take care of that distortion, and after a decade of spin and sofa, I think time has already taken care of that distortion. Let's see if Ken Morgan agrees. Ken, you're very welcome. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a great honour to be asked to give a Gresham lecture and uh, indeed a greater honour to be chaired by my old friend uh, uh, Peter Hennessy. I was relieved to hear Peter say that proceedings would end around seven because I saw an advert in a history uh, journal last week that said this will go on until Saturday the 9th of June. Uh, so, um, but you don't need your sleeping bags and uh, like um, Mark Twain's death, that is somewhat exaggerated as a report. But it's a very good time, as Peter has suggested, to, to look at the legacy of a Labour Prime Minister. And as Tony Blair rides into the sunset, we might look at the life and achievement of Jim Callaghan. They were, of course, very, very different as men, very different as Prime Ministers. Jim made no claim to be charismatic, 
His premiership has sometimes been seen as an interlude uh, and nothing uh, more than that, an interlude between the hedonism of uh, Harold Wilson's era and the capitalism market-driven of Mrs. Thatcher. Callaghan was also clearly unpresidential. He operated collectively and through so doing, I believe genuinely inspired, a word we've heard something about in the last few weeks, a sense of trust. People trusted him. But he and Tony Blair, certainly one thing in common, they both suffer from stereotypes. In Jim Callahan's case, the stereotype indeed is that he was stolid, old labor, ineradicably bound to, in capital letters, this great movement of ours, the alliance with the unions, corporate style of government, belief in the enabling, enabling role of uh, the state. 1978, uh, in a famous, on famous occasion, the trade unions expecting a statement about an imminent general election found themselves, to their astonishment, entertained with an old music hall song, There Was I Waiting at the Church, which I shall not attempt to sing myself. Jim Callan, initially rather characteristically, attributed it to Marie Lloyd in the Callahan paper there's a letter from the comedian Roy Hudd uh, saying that actually it was a song sung by Vesta Victoria. Uh, and Jim Callahan replies, well, I knew that, but I thought nobody would have heard from <laughs> Vesta <laughs> Victoria. That, that, is, that is quite accurate. So Jim Callahan associated, well, associated with an ancien regime, people talking about the end of an era, a long era of post-war social democracy. Uh, in 1979. Now, this is not wholly untrue. He was, of course, in many ways, a very traditional figure. He was Labour in, in a way that is almost impossible to uh, recreate at the present time. As a 12-year-old schoolboy in 1924, he was running around the school playground at the time of the 1924 general election, shouting, we'll soak the rich. I think of you, he slightly altered in later, later life, perhaps. He was background was one of very extreme personal and social deprivation. He was hungry, he was poor in a way that it's almost impossible to imagine now uh, for a time living on bread and dripping, their resources augmented by margarine brought around by the local Baptist church. He was very well aware that he never went uh, to university. And when I had the privilege of writing his biography, I was actually a university vice chancellor, and that brought one or two somewhat wry exchanges, perhaps, on uh, between us. Very different from Michael Foote, who I've just been writing about. Michael came from a very patrician, comfortable, liberal background in the West Country. Uh, Jim, by contrast, 
genuinely working class. It's a bit difficult perhaps to classify Ramsay MacDonald, but subject only to him, the only working class prime minister we've ever had and I would surmise ever will have. Uh, Michael Foote again, his literary interests extraordinary. They include a great uh, spread of authors, people like Dean Swift, Edmund Burke, Benjamin Disraeli. These are amongst Michael's favorite authors, and none of them can really be included in any particular sense within the radical tradition. His friends included people like Beaverbrook and Randolph Churchill and Enoch Powell. Jim Callahan, much more enclosed, more intensely labor world. And my, my impression is that Jim Callahan's early reading was a strongly labor, strongly socialist, the most influential author upon him being Harold Lasky, a charismatic figure in his day. So in that way, Jim, you might say traditional labor, original labor, uh, perhaps a figure, but also another side, a very important other side, a career full of surprises, full of high drama. He was, I think, a more complicated and perhaps you might say more interesting figure than these stereotypes uh, might suggest. He was associated with the unions, but Jim was not simply at all a traditional union man. The union of which he was an official in the 30s was a small white-collar union uh, which was not allowed to have political activity or affiliations, um, certainly until after 1945. He was not a man close to the unions or the union barons, uh, and he only became close to the unions, I think very much in mid-career in 1967, when he uh, left the uh, Treasury in somewhat ignominious circumstances and started rebuilding or building up anew his career within the party. He did, however, I must say, retain traditional respect for union practices, and he always had his famous negotiating style. I'll give you this, uh, and you can give me that, which, which his civil servants noticed. I actually experienced this when I was writing his biography, because he arranged for me, and it's the most interesting interview I've ever had in my life, uh, a long interview with Helmut Schmidt, the ex-German chancellor, which I thoroughly enjoyed. And sometime afterwards, I had a, a letter from a German lady uh, and clearly she was writing um, the life of Helmut Schmidt and uh, it had clearly been arranged that I would have access to Schmidt if she had access to Jim Callahan. So in terms of my research, I was a, a beneficiary of this negotiating style. As a politician, as a young politician, Jim Callahan was quite often, well, he was certainly unconventional and he was actually quite often rebellious. See, he was certainly not the stereotype of a typical party liner. 
very early on, before he was even an MP, he was amongst those who spoke against the executive and the famous Reading Party conference in 1944, urging that nationalization should be a uh, central priority. And when he became an MP in 1945, one of his first votes was against the American loan uh, negotiated by Keynes uh, at the end of the war. There were just 23 MPs who voted against the loan. One was Michael Foote, perhaps not very surprising, but one perhaps more surprising was Jim Callaghan. He was associated for a time with Keep Left, the critics of uh, Ernest Bevin's foreign policy for being too anti-Soviet and so on. And he led, uh, did Jim, the most extraordinary thing really, a major rebellion. In fact, the only serious defeat that the Labour government with its huge majority experienced in the Commons uh, in its six years in power. And this was in 1947 on the duration of national service. And Jim moved his amendment and the government actually was defeated. So for a time, the government had to uh, reorganize its uh, defense arrangements and reduce the period of national service. And uh, I, know, I know that Peter is uh, rightly a great enthusiast for Clem Attlee. It does seem to be an example of Attlee's um, big and largeness of spirit that later in the year, never Nevertheless, he gave Jim his first post in government, even though he must absolutely have been cursing him for his rebelliousness. As a junior minister, you still wasn't a pushover. Herbert Morrison found this in 1948 when Jim Callaghan was amongst the ministers who declined to vote with the government in support of retaining capital punishment. He always had very strong feelings on, on, on penal matters, actually, Jim, although he's often misrepresented in this area. He was actually the Home Secretary who finally terminated capital punishment in 1969, and in 1948 he was man enough to stand up to the great Herbert Morrison and not be bullied by him. He voted against German rearmament with Hugh Dalton in 1954, again a minority point of view and, you know, for a careerist young man or youngish man, not perhaps the course you would have necessarily followed. And finally, much later in his career, he took, of course, the most colossal risk in challenging Harold Wilson over his trade union policy, the Industrial Relations Bill in 1969, which clearly could have been the end of Jim Callaghan's career, except, in fact, uh, rightly or wrongly, it was Callaghan and not Wilson whom the unions and the party and the bulk of the cabinet actually uh, supported. Uh, it was a risky thing to do. Uh, I think he did it on grounds of, of principle. Uh, he's sometimes quoted as saying, and I can think of one particular occasion, sometimes quoted as saying that uh, he realized he'd made a huge mistake and his experience as prime minister showed that he should have taken a different line 10 years earlier. I do not believe he ever thought that. I, I've never had any inkling in the long conversations I had with, with Jim that he felt he was wrong and he thought it should be a voluntary matter and that imposing penal sanctions on the unions was simply incorrect. 
So a complicated man, and um, Peter's fascinating <laughs> observations earlier suggest perhaps not so easy to classify. I'm certainly going to argue later on that he has more in common with so-called new labor than frequently has been represented, and indeed in some respects you could even say oh, was one of the chief architects of new labor in spite of the personal and other gulf between him and the Blairites. He became prime minister after being uh, after holding every major office of state. He's the only person ever in our history to do that. He was Chancellor, Home Secretary, Foreign Secretary, and Prime Minister. All these, um, all these offices contributed something important to his premiership. So too, actually, there's something I'll just mention in passing, his period before that, he was shadow colonial secretary between 1957, just after Suez, and 1961. And he was there at an extremely important period in British Commonwealth colonial history. When Jim became shadow colonial secretary, in a way that's very difficult to understand now, Africa in particular and the dissolving uh, Commonwealth, the emergence of new nations was absolutely central to British politics. It was a very special period, the end of empire was upon us, and Jim Callaghan was, if you like, given a, a very remarkable opportunity, uh, which I believe he took uh, with uh, some aplomb. He was a very effective uh, shadow uh, colonial secretary. I would argue he actually gave the Labour Party a coherent posture in uh, decon during decolonization, unlike, for example, the movement for colonial freedom, which was simply, as it were, anti-imperialist and uh, uh, had, you, you could say, a more limited diagnosis. Africa was an abiding point of reference for Jim, Africa more than Asia, I think, and very important in his later career, Jimmy Carter, Helmut Schmidt, the other European leaders looked at Callaghan uh, in the 1970s as someone who had a particular expertise and knowledge uh, about uh, colonial affairs and indeed is applied, as I shall mention later, to the Middle East as well. In terms of uh, Jim Callaghan's standing as a politician, it meant that he ceased to be regarded simply as a domestic politician concerned with transport and uh, social matters. He enormously widened his uh, scope and he became very uh, friendly with many of the important leaders of the newly emergent nations in Africa, Kenneth Kaunda, Julius Nyerere, um, Joshua Nkomo, Tom Boyer, who was sadly killed, uh, very much the important leaders of of um, African nationalism and very close to Jim Callaghan when he was Prime Minister um, 15 to 20 years later. Grantley Adams in the Caribbean and also Lee Kuan Yew who um, 
I interviewed uh, for my book in, uh, in, in, in Singapore. I, this is completely irrelevant, but I'll tell you one little story uh, that Lee Kuan Yew said to me, very nice to me, but he said, why are you writing a biography, Mr. Morgan? Uh, we don't write biographies in Singapore. We study movements, you see. It's very traditional of the Anglo-Saxons and so on, too. Okay, fine. Well, I, my son was with me, and we then went down Orchard Road, I think it's called, to the bookshops. And you go to politics, every single book was about Lee Kuan Yew. So, so, <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's irrelevant, but I hope you appreciate the story. He was then Chancellor, 64 to 7, under Harold Wilson, the most difficult of the offices that he held. I don't think Jim had a great feel for the subtleties of economic policy. He also had the extreme problem of the DEA also being created. There was an alternative engine of economic policy under the distinctly combustible figure of George Brown. Though I may say Jim himself could be combustible enough too, and Sonny Jim wasn't always the impression that one perhaps got. But the huge problems, balance of payments, drains on the reserve, threats to the pound, Huge crisis of July 1966, when Peter, I take it, his next volume gets on to 1966, uh, uh, suggests that perhaps he might regard July 1966 as a great turning point in, in a variety of ways, and Jim was the victim of that, ending with devaluation of the pound, which Jim had always resisted. The curious thing is that his prestige still remained very high. It wasn't like, you know, Lamont and the, the people with the Tories in, with the ERM in 19. 1992, who were thought thereafter to have, rightly or wrongly, as they say, to discredit themselves as uh, gui guides in economic policy. Most of the flack went to Harold Wilson. It was Harold, poor old Harold, who had made that famous television program in which he said that the pound in your pocket was not being devalued, which was technically correct, but not a very wise thing to say, perhaps. But Harold received the flack. Uh, Jim Callaghan uh, retained a good deal of his political uh, prestige. He was thought of as a man who had been, in some ways, quite innovative at the uh, Treasury, uh, particularly in taxation policy, which I think he was probably particularly interested in as an old tax officer, uh, corporation tax, capital gains tax were his uh, yeah, inventions, who perhaps some of you will be glad to know. He became party treasurer and was still regarded as a big man. So although I think his period at the Treasury was his least effective and least prestigious, it was by no means wholly negative in its impact on his career. Then he went to the Home Office. Jim suggested that he might go to education. And interestingly, Harold Wilson uh, seems to have said that education wasn't quite important enough. So, uh, uh, and, uh, Peter and I are academics. It's an interesting thought. But uh, anyway, he went to the Home Office and at first, by all accounts, was a bit demoralized, still suffering from the trauma of devaluation. 
And in fact, however, Jim proved to be a very unusual phenomenon, I think, a Home Secretary whose prestige rose considerably uh, while he was Home Secretary. He's often been compared with Roy Jenkins as a much more liberally uh, disposed uh, person, much, uh, much more sympathetic to permissiveness. I mean, in a general way, this is certainly true. Jim didn't like uh, permissiveness. He wasn't terribly uh, keen on, well, in uh, uh, take this how you like, on sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I don't know about rock and roll, perhaps, but uh, certainly he took a, 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 a stern view. He was a product of the Baptist Church, the nonconformist conscience, and he did represent this. But I also think that Jim's, if you like, illiberalism has been much exaggerated, uh, particularly over immigration, because he felt, uh, I mean, I just report it, that I think it could be argued that uh, Roy Jenkins had ducked this as, as a hard one. It was left to Jim to, to cope with immigration, and uh, he didn't, in my view, uh, deal with it in a very, a very liberal way. But uh, at any rate, it was an issue that he, he, he dealt with, and he felt that it was popular amongst Labour uh, voters in industrial parts of the country. He certainly strengthened his reputation over what you might call popular protest. Demos about Vietnam, about apartheid. He struck, most people felt, a good balance between being uh, supportive of the police and nevertheless uh, championing free speech. Uh, he championed, he had been spokesman of the police, and one of the things he rather disliked, actually, was being depicted in cartoons with a policeman's helmet on, uh, looking rather like Dixon of Doc Green in that old television drama series, saying things like, mind how you go, and so on. But uh, he did create that impression, but he was also, nevertheless, uh, entirely tolerant uh, towards popular protest, and the Grosvenor Square protests of 1968 about the Vietnam War was regarded as something of a triumph for the Home Office, whereas it could have been easily a disaster. Where he did most display his flair was over Northern Ireland. He acted here with decisiveness and courage. He had no other connection with Ireland other than his name. There were no guidelines, there were no files in uh, the Home Office about dealing with Northern Ireland because, of course, it was all handled, it was thought, by Stormont in the North. And in the crisis, civil rights crisis, 68, particularly 69, he showed remarkable executive flair. He reformed the police, he abolished the B-specials who were regarded as almost a paramilitary and overwhelmingly Protestant uh, force. He reformed policy on housing and jobs and to a degree on in uh, apprenticeships in the shipyards, for example. Many people, oh, and he faced down Ian Paisley, yeah, famous. I mean, Jim was a tough guy, and they had a famous exchange where Jim said to Paisley, uh, we are all the children of God, Mr. Paisley, to which Paisley is supposed to have replied, no, we are all the children of wrath. 
I, I think that's the correct pronunciation. <laughs> uh, but he stood up to Paisley, and many people feel that had Labour won the 1970 election at a time when provisional Sinn Féin was quite small, at a time when Paisley was not a great uh, figure, that perhaps the Irish problem might have been settled. At any rate, Harold Wilson, infuriated by Callaghan's stance over the trade unions, now felt after his handling of Irish policy that here was a big man. In spite of all past arguments, here was his natural successor as leader of the Labour Party. 1974, Jim went on to be Foreign Secretary. I glide over the period of opposition when, incidentally, he almost died. He had a very serious uh, operation, but he became Foreign Secretary, very distinctive Foreign Secretary, and he, as he'd been a very distinctive Home Secretary. It was noted by his officials he was far more in touch with party affairs. Uh, with Transport House, as, as it was then, uh, uh, than uh, Foreign Secretaries traditionally were. He had regular meetings with Harold Wilson about the state of the party, future direction of policy, and so on. And he was felt to be uh, effective. He was felt to be effective in terms of policy, for example, dealing with European security, and he was also felt to be effective, perhaps uh, too effective, in relations with the United States, which had been uh, fairly frigid uh, during the premiership of Edward Heath, who was, of course, much more European. And so you have this very fascinating relationship uh, with Henry Kissinger, and I interviewed Kissinger uh, for my book, and it was kind of atmospheric. I didn't know he told me anything new, but it was interesting. What did emerge was that uh, Jim was not a pushover, that he certainly uh, yielded. I don't think at any alternative over uh, Cyprus, but uh, there's one key area, which was the revolution in Portugal which the Americans were very apprehensive about and feared communist uh, leadership and perhaps a takeover. And it's quite clear that the British government acted uh, much more strenuously. And in fact, I know, in fact, I know in ways that I wasn't allowed, so to speak, to put on paper uh, that the British government actually assisted the Suarez and the other socialist leaders in Portugal in overthrowing a dictatorship. The most important friendship, as I suggested at the beginning, that Jim made was with Helmut Schmidt and really for the rest of his career, in fact for the rest of his life, the axis between Helmut Schmidt, Chancellor of Germany and Jim Callahan was very, very important to both. Each admired the other. Jim certainly admired Schmidt's intellectual subtlety, clarity of mind. Uh, Schmidt told me he greatly admired Jim, as if you like, the kind of decent, old-fashioned social democrat boss he'd grown up with in Hamburg as a young man in the German Socialist Party. And the effect on Jim was to make European policy much more important. He'd been a bit of an agnostic over Europe before. He'd made some anti-European noises in 
opposition uh, one particular speech which culminated with the phrase not very well pronounced non merci beaucoup uh, still causes me some embarrassment but in office he took on uh, what he called the renegotiation of relations between Britain and the EEC. He secured certainly benefits on numerous uh, Commonwealth products, including uh, small countries like Botswana, for example, whose beef he managed to get a special uh, arrangement for in uh, the European markets and the budgets. The effect was that Callaghan emerged as a very, very strong man after the renegotiation and the um, referendum which saw Britain's membership of what was then the common market strongly confirmed. And in the latter stages, I think, of Harold Wilson's premiership, I mean, Jim was really rather running the show. Harold, uh, Peter, you know, wasn't well. Uh, one or two conferences, he wasn't actually able to show up for one reason or another, and Callaghan, in fact, spoke on behalf of the British government, and so he was the natural successor to Harold Wilson in March 1976, and I think, to the relief of both of them, defeated Michael Foote uh, in the election uh, at that particular time and became Prime Minister. As Prime Minister, he used a collective style. Quite unlike Tony Blair, more importantly, quite unlike Harold Wilson, it was felt that the atmosphere changed. There wasn't a kitchen cabinet, there wasn't concern about leaks and moles. The press office under Tom McCaffrey, who later served under Michael Foote, was quite different from the way the press had been handled under Harold Wilson, and not to mention the role of the soon-to-be um, memoirized, or whatever the word is, Alistair Campbell. He had a very uh, remarkable range both of individual advisers and uh, institutional supports. The political office under Tom McNally, who I believe is, is present, I think, uh, at any rate, he was, um, I, I was very struck actually by the way the young McNally was really given uh, a pretty free reign and, uh, and, and allowed to produce suggestions of stimulating kind all over the range of policy by uh, Jim Callaghan. He had the policy unit under uh, Bernard Donoghue with uh, important, very, very young economists like Gavin Davis, who was about 25, I think, when he first worked for Jim Callaghan, and also the CPRS under Kenneth Beryl, which included people like Tessa Blackstone. The whole thing amounted, I believe, to a kind of revolution in central government, but, but a revolution that did not upset the way the civil service worked. It dovetailed broadly with the civil service and didn't perhaps produce some of the strains that we have seen in recent years. It did also, of course, give Jim Callaghan other sources of advice and information. There's no doubt, I think, that the policy unit was an alternative source to the Treasury without being formally a challenge to it on important areas of policy. His style was collegiate, 
thought to be far more open than under Harold Wilson, at least in his later period. Certainly, I heard uh, great praise both from Shirley Williams and from Tony Benn to take the opposite wings of the cabinet. He was close to, very close to Dennis Healy, who uh, developed great uh, uh, comradeship for uh, Jim and also Michael Foote. I mean, I found that in doing my, my recent book so interesting because Michael Foote was always on the left, Jim was on the right, and yet they worked very, very closely together. I found, if I may divulge this, a uh, very moving episode. The last time I met Jim Callahan was at his farm on the 13th of February 2005 to mark the fact that he had become the longest living Prime Minister. Minister, and Dennis um, raised a glass and toasted Jim Callahan in just one sentence. Jim was very moved, and then he said, let's not forget Michael Foote, and I was very, very touched by that, and Michael, of course, wasn't present, I think, was, was touched to, to hear it. So they worked very well, and I must say, both when I was writing my book on, on, on Jim and writing my book on Michael, they were both very, very loyal to each other and spoke with great uh, warmth about their association. The feeling of trust that Jim aroused was shown to best advantage in the the IMF crisis, November-December 1976, International Monetary Fund crisis, Britain very much in hock. Uh, Callaghan operating with a background of great suspicion of the Treasury. They might be giving him the wrong figures. As a matter of fact, was well justified because they were giving him the wrong figures. The figures were not actually as bad as he was told. But uh, I remember putting this actually to one of Jim's Treasury colleagues. He said, well, it's just always like that. You just as it were, assume that the figures are wrong. Well, there we are. But Jim was suspicious. In the end, however, a consensus was agreed. Jim felt, and his colleagues felt, and his policy advisers felt, that it was a great triumph of political skill. The government had stayed together. It was not another 1931. Jim, being of that generation, could truly say, I have not been another Ramsay MacDonald. After that, things went pretty well. People often forget that for about 20 months, January 1977 to October 1978, the economy went pretty well. Douglas Jay has written that the government both reduced inflation and raised employment at much the same time, because an unusual achievement. And Jim was also able to take up themes of his own, uh, particularly, uh, though br briefly, education education, education in the Ruskin speech, which Jim did pick up, I think one can fairly say, themes about, you know, the quality of educational instruction and so on in a way that was prophetic. His prestige grew particularly in foreign affairs. He really did act as a bridge, in my view. Tony Blair talks about being a bridge, and it's a rather curious construct. You know, you wonder what's at either end of the bridge, so to speak. But uh, Jim felt that he was an effective bridge between uh, Europe, 
and the United States. He had strong relationships, both, as I've said, with Helmut Schmidt and, to a slightly lesser degree, to his fellow Baptist, fellow ex-sailor, President Jimmy Carter. Uh, talking to uh, Helmut Schmidt about President Carter was, uh, well, I put it in my book, an interesting experience. It wasn't an altogether cordial account, but it made one realize how much on defense and other matters was owed to Jim Callahan's role. Jim took an active role in, in Europe, and in one particular episode, uh, I think I can say until my book appeared, it wasn't uh, in print, uh, his role in the Camp David Agreement of 1978, because he knew both Begin, the Israeli Prime Minister, and Sadat, the Egyptian president, quite well. He had strong links with both. He was felt broadly to be genuinely impartial, and Carter always observed a very gracefully and generously that uh, the Camp David Agreement, which God knows one of the very few agreements we've had in that part of the world, that uh, owed a great deal to Jim Callahan's mediation. And I think it was unspectacular, but it was effective, and uh, Britain being regarded as an effective and impartial operator in that part of the world is not something we've heard too much of lately. Down to the end of 1978, Jim Callahan I believe was seen as broadly an effective prime minister, head of a minority government defended for a long time on a pact with the liberals. But there were many naval metaphors about uh, steady as you go and a calm pilot in the storm, and so the ex-sailor Jim was thought to be getting us through. And then came a, certainly a series of surprising decisions, and whether it's hubris or whatever, certainly someone regarded as a master politician, I, I think, I don't know whether Peter will agree with all of this, but uh, made a number of serious mistakes. One, he didn't call a general election uh, after the summer in 1907. This is very debatable and indeed understandable. And I have to say, had I been Prime Minister then, I've looked at the cephalogical material that he did, and I don't think I would have called a general election. Perhaps I'm a cautious chap too, but it certainly looked as if Labour could hope for no more than perhaps another minority government. But he was supported, I may say, by four ministers. Michael Foote, because he just liked what was going on, Dennis Healy, because he thought the economy wouldn't get any worse, David Owen, who had things to do about, uh, with regard to Rhodesia, and Merlin Rees, uh, who I think just, just was a tranquil man, not a, not a risk taker. Uh, everybody else took the other view, so most people have seen this as an example of indecisiveness on Jim's part. He ducked the decision. As I said earlier, he uh, entertained the, the TUC with a song about waiting at the church. The government thereafter clearly was on the defensive, particularly at the mercy of the Scottish nationalists, who eventually did them in after the inability of Scotland to get devolution. There were other errors too. Jim, the man who understood the trade unions, who had grown up uniquely as a trade union official with Douglas Houghton. Serious political errors, uh, handling of wage claims. He 
made his announcement about a 5% pay limit uh, quite unexpectedly uh, in a television interview when people hadn't anticipated that. So I mean, I think technically the answer was probably a, a 0% pay limit in terms of the state of inflation, but it, it didn't make him look good. And there were various other um, various other errors too. I suppose the most famous one is when he came back from the conference in Guadeloupe uh, and um he was suntanned, of course. Britain was in the midst of a very, very cold winter and the winter of discontent. There was rubbish on the streets, uh, hospital wards were being closed and so on. And uh, Jim uh, is eternally associated with saying something like, crisis, what crisis? He didn't actually quite say that, but he acknowledged himself it was, it was, it was, it was near enough. What happened was that his two policy advisors, one of whom I believe is present here um, uh, took different views and one said you must immediately make a statement Jim and show you're in charge and the other said I would just say glad to be back go back have a sleep and think about it so Terry you took the first view I also think I've seen the video of this interview and I'm absolutely sure the one reason one reason why he said something like crisis where he was interviewed uh, or interrupted actually by a young woman reporter and Jim, I think, had rather traditional views about what young women ought to do. And he was, I think, irritated, this young whippersnapper, whatever the term is, um, um, interrupting him. And I, I think it just made him a bit, a bit crusty. So at any rate, he was stuck with that. And then there was the very sad period of ennui, uh, immobility during the winter of discontent. And Jim saying to me, as he said to civil servants like Ken Stowe at the time, I let the country down. It's very sad to hear a senior politician saying that. The strikes rolled on, eventually a pretty empty so-called Concorda was agreed with the trade unions. Nothing much seemed to be happening fatalism gripping the government. So Bernard Donoghue's account refers to being on the decks of the Titanic and so on. I think without the music, I think Bernard's phrase. People felt like that. And the election campaign following the defeats of devolution in Wales and in Scotland, uh, leading to, as I say, a state of immobility. Jim clearly believing that there was a change of mood that the mood was for Mrs. Thatcher. Whether that is so is very interesting to debate, and it's not altogether clear, I think, from the public opinion surveys at the time, but certainly the country felt that things were going very badly, and they felt the Prime Minister was depressed and had to go. I think that while Jim is no doubt properly subject to criticism on these matters, I also think the Labour Party was almost beyond leadership uh, by this stage, or very shortly was. The unions uh, were never more powerful, never more in need of strong leaders. They'd lost Jack Jones, they'd lost Hugh Scanlon. Uh, the uh, unions are very difficult to, to, to rein in and make, uh, have them made aware of inflationary pressures in the constituency. There was a leftward tide encouraged increasingly by Tony Benn, who was both in the government and in a curious way outside the government at the same time. Jim Callaghan himself uh, unable 
able, perhaps, to comprehend the change in the mentality of the trade union movement in which he grew up. He'd grown up in this movement. It seemed totally different. Its links with the Labour Party seemed fragile. Whether anyone else would have done any better? Very debatable. I don't personally think that Dennis Healy, who was not greatly involved in internal party management, uh, would have been more effective. Michael Foote did very much worse. So the effect was clearly uh, for the perhaps greatest political friend the unions had ever had in high places, uh, Jim Callaghan, uh, to uh, lose his position as Premier, to lose his position as party leader, and one absolutely central theme under the government of Tony Blair has been that the trade unions have been completely marginalised uh, from the start. When the, the um, parliamentary party kindly asked me to give a talk um, beginning of last year on the foundation of the Labour Party in 1906, I was constrained to point out the Labour Party was formed by two elements, the socialists and the trade unions, and they both played virtually little part, or no, no part at all, in the Labour Party at the present time. I believe that Jim Callaghan was a considerable Prime Minister. For that matter, in the House of Lords and elsewhere, he was a considerable ex-Prime Minister. Many people told me thought he was a model of what an ex-Prime Minister ought to be. His Premiership, I believe, was more than an interlude. It was a phase of history in its own right. Jim Callaghan's reputation seems to me rather paradoxical. Most people thought of him as a kind of rough-and-tumble party politician, a partisan, the man who fiddled the electoral boundaries commission to Labour's advantage in, or delayed uh, acting on it, in 1969. A very dominant figure, always in party conference. And in fact, as party leader, he was not successful. You have to say that uh, perhaps for reasons beyond the uh, grasp of any individual, that the state of the party was much worse in 1980 than it was in 1976. As a national leader, however, I believe his impact was very much greater. He is one of those few uh, individuals whose standing was distinctly higher when he left office uh, than when he went in. His standing, I may say, was much higher than that of Mrs. Thatcher. Though I think it should certainly be added that Mrs. Thatcher did not benefit by being a woman in a largely all-male House of Commons, and she did far more effectively, obviously, as Prime Minister. In many ways, Jim was a cautious man, cautious over constitutional reform, not adventurous over Europe, man who believed in family values and uh, the evil of permissiveness in a way that was perhaps difficult to adapt to the current mood, but the country responded to it. Most people felt like that themselves. He was a strong man. 
was also, uh, I mean, I cannot let the lecture conclude without referring to Wales. He was also a great Englishman, uh, but nevertheless a great Englishman in Wales. He was, I may say, the most important Englishman in Welsh politics since Gladstone lived in Harden Castle. And when we talked about rugby matters, as we did, when he said we, he meant the Welsh rugby team and not the English rugby team. As Prime Minister, I do not believe he was backward looking. He led the first uh, inquiry, interrogation into the economic policies of the last 30 years, the exact import of his famous phrase, you cannot spend your way out of a recession, has been debated. The speech was partly written by Peter Jay, but it did, I believe, chime in with Callaghan's awareness, which not too many people had then, that the essential economic problem facing our country uh, was inflation and not unemployment, or rather the relative roles of the two were changing. As I've said, he uh, made a uh, priority of education in a way that was very forward-looking. He helped to revise, I believe, the Labour Party's attitude towards law and order. Quite a lot of people in the grassroots, and I speak from my own observation, were simply anti-police, and uh, uh, Jim, I believe, helped to attain a better balance there. He pressed on with devolution. He didn't like devolution. I remember talking to Jim in 1997 after the book, and he said, do you want devolution to succeed in Wales, Ken? I said, yes, I do, and he, he didn't altogether agree with me, but uh, uh, he pressed on with it, put it on the agenda. He made Britain more important in Europe, and in many ways anticipated uh, new labor and the policies of a later generation. In Labour terms, as a leader, as a Prime Minister, he embodied, if anybody does, the traditional values of solidarity. That's what he symbolised. He seems to me with Arthur Henderson and Herbert Morrison, one of the three great people who made and sustained the Labour Alliance, which now may perhaps be changing or even breaking up, but Callan was there. The very strong sense of class of us and them, strong sense of the party. He had actually a very strong sense of history. I mean, our present Prime Minister is not famous for his interest in historical matters, I think. In my opinion, not merely did Jim read far more history and take more interest in historical themes than Tony Blair. I actually think he took more interest in labor history than Michael Foote. I mean, Michael Foote's interest in history is very considerable, but, you know, it, it's uh, Swift and Hazlitt and, and the French Revolution. I think Michael's interest in history tend to peter out a bit in the 1890s or so when the you know, Labour Party is just coming about in this country. Jim was more than a pragmatist. He was not just a managerialist. He was bigger than that. He was a man with an ideology. He believed himself to be a democratic socialist. I, I asked him at the end of my book, are you a socialist, Jim? And he seemed very surprised that I asked the question, perhaps it tells you something, and I did ask it, and he said, of course, and he just took it as axiomatic. He had the same set of values for a socialist and fairer society as he had had as a young man. His career was full of color, full of surprises. There will never be a prime minister like him again.
in labour terms in pursuing the yellow brick road from Atley's Middle Way to Blair's Third Way, Jim Callahan, Big Jim, was foremost, I believe, amongst the pioneers. fascinating and very insightful survey of Jim. I'd forgotten if indeed I ever knew that Jim thought of going, wanted to go to education in 67, but he once had a conversation with me when John Major was Prime Minister. He said, I feel very much for John Major in the middle of his terrible travails with his party, because like me, he didn't go to university. And you feel it, you know, if you haven't, that period of intense reading. And I thought, well, that doesn't quite apply to every undergraduate I've ever known. <laughs> University of Cambridge in the 60s, but I knew what he meant. And then he said something else. He said, but Major's got another disadvantage compared to me. He's only been in the House of Commons since 79, when his party has always been in office. He's never been in Parliament when his party's been in opposition. That really teaches you things. Jim, Jim believed in the sort of particles of experience accumulating, in a great sense of that. I, I, just to fill out a little bit what Ken said about leaks, he wasn't paranoid like Harold, but he got very cross about leaks. Remember the child benefit leak of 76? And a cabinet committee which he uh, presided over was going to have a new official secrets act. And his friend Merlin Rees was being briefed because it was going to come up in the Queen's speech in 76. And they said, Merlin was a nice man, a very nice man. They said, Home Secretary, all you need to know about the reason for this is we've got to replace an old unusable blunderbuss in the Official Secrets Act 1911 with a modern and deadly armalite. But you mustn't say that in the House of Commons. Well, Hugh Fraser got up Merlin's nostrils, and Merlin said, it has been said, and very wisely, that our whole purpose is to replace an old unusable blunderbuss by a modern deadly armalite, but they didn't have the majority. Indeed, um, Jim had just been declassified, a leak inquiry into me that he authorised in 78. He got quite cross with me when I was a young journalist, though we became friends later. But he could be very funny about leaks. He said to the Franks inquiry on official secrets in 72, I brief, you leak, which is a very Jim remark. But as Ken said, becoming Prime Minister really became him. It was, he really grew, well, he was a very big figure already, but he became Prime Minister and surpassed the expectations of many, even of those who were well disposed towards him. But there's a kind of iron law of cruelty about politicians, I think. How, and this may be a warning for Gordon, you can all too easily be destroyed on exactly that terrain that you think you know best. Eden, 56, diplomacy, Middle East, Jim trade unions. If what Mervyn King, the governor of the bank, calls the nice era, non-inflationary, consistently expansionary, is over, and it gets difficult, for all Gordon's latter-day discovery of the beauties of collegiality, on which he's almost become boring, I wonder if that will hold if we hit real economic trouble, because he, he will think he knows better than anybody else in his cabinet. And that, I think, could be his greatest anxiety. If I was close to him, which I'm not, that's what I would say to him. Because that was Jim's tragedy. It was the people he thought he knew best, who he turned out not to know. And it stayed with him. He behaved wonderfully well in retirement. He was an example of how ex-Prime Ministers should behave. And I'm not close to the current Prime Minister either, but I would say just follow Jim when in doubt. And just to end on this, because there's a kind of, the trade union he belonged to at the end is a very small and exclusive one. It's of ex-Prime Ministers. And he once told me how much that could matter. And he was only in Parliament for one more Parliament after 79. He retired from Parliament in 83. 
And in that period, Ted Heath was treated as worse than the leader of the opposition by many of the Thatcherite backbenchers. And he said to me on one occasion, Ted was battling against barracking from behind him on his own benches in an economic debate and was suffering. And he looked across the chamber to me for reassurance. And I nodded reassurance to Ted. And that was Jim. He was partisan, of course he was, but he was a bigger figure than that. And in that way, his residue will always, to me, be specially exemplary. He was a very distinctive figure. And it's, as Ken said, almost inconceivable now that the compost which gave us Jim could produce leaders of any of that sort. And he really, for me, and this is high praise for me because I'm a bit of a romantic about it, he was the absolute incarnation of Labour's high tide of 45. And all his attitudes reflected that. There were shortcomings in that era, of course there were. But Jim, I always thought, was Clem Attlee and Ernie Bevin by another means, but was also his own man. And that really did make him special. Ken, thank you. You've given us a treat. For all inquiries, please go to our website at www.gresham.ac.uk.